Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited today to have clinical professor, Dr. Jim Simon. He comes to us from Washington, D.C. He is a clinical professor at George Washington University, and he works at Intim Medicine Specialists. He's the immediate past president for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, or ISHWISH. I know you guys have heard me talk about that before. And then he's the past president of the North American Menopause Society. So he is at the top of the thought leaders on menopause and hormones and female sexual health. And I could be happier to have him on today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here, Kelly. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So my women, they want the truth. They just feel like they've been in the dark. Their doctors aren't helping them understand what to do in perimenopause and menopause. And they're really hungry for kind of how we got here and why everybody's in this situation. So my first question is, why did we scare everybody with hormones? Why do all these women come in just thinking estrogen is a bad thing? You know, I think that's a fundamental question I'm not sure about. Here's what I think happened. As in science in a lot of places and at a lot of times, we have a group of people that feel very strongly about something. And in this particular case, in the early 1990s, the majority of doctors practicing, regardless of their discipline, felt very strongly that hormones, menopausal hormones, were a good thing. And they were giving them, really without thinking, willy-nilly, if you will, to every woman 50 years of age and older, including some very much older women with cardiovascular disease. And it was being used to treat cardiovascular disease. And then the government decided to spend a huge amount of money to do a really good study to determine whether giving hormones to all postmenopausal women was a good thing. And it turns out that we learned importantly that everyone is not the same, big revelation, and that younger women by and large benefited from hormones, younger, broadly speaking, 50 to 60, older women, had mostly detriment and really severe complications of being on hormones, those being the women 70 to 80. Yes, starting on hormones in those studies started at age 70 years in some cases. And that women in their 60s were kind of a mixed bag of those in the 50s and those in the 70s and were a little less clear as to whether the risks outweighed the benefits. But because the majority of women were over age 60, the broad brushstroke was that hormones are bad for you. And we forgot all the women who were 50 to 60 and just painted with a very unilateral brushstroke that made hormones bad for you as opposed to telling the truth, which is, for some women, they're good. For some women, they're who knows. And for some women, they're really bad. And do you think this is why now that doctors are so afraid of hormones or tell women they don't need them is because 
generation of doctors now didn't get trained in it? Or why do you think doctors are now so hesitant? Because I think women are going in saying, hey, what about these, uh, this as an option? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that in the face of telling the world, as we did in the U.S., that hormones are bad for you with a brushstroke, hormones are bad for all women, it's taking a very long time to pick up where that left off and train on the subtleties and differences among women so that the women who would benefit get the benefits and the women who are really at risk can be avoided or treated otherwise. That makes sense. Set us straight. I actually had a gynecologist friend set me straight this week because I was saying progesterone when I should be saying progestins in protecting the uterus. Can you give us like just a very short nomenclature on estrogen and progesterone or progestins? Sure. Really easy. Progesterone is a single chemical entity. It's the one that's bioidentical. It's the one that women make every time they ovulate or when they're pregnant, and it's one thing. Because progesterone, natural, normal, bioidentical progesterone, that one thing is a very poorly absorbed compound when given orally, we developed a whole slew of progesterone-like compounds called progestins or progestogens same story, and they're synthetic, and they're better absorbed by mouth, and they're the form of progestational agent that works in birth control pills and many kinds of menopausal hormone therapies, but are not natural micronized progesterone. And so that's the difference. They're not necessarily good. They're not necessarily bad, but they do similar things in the uterus but they all have off-target effects. So progesterone, when given orally, makes one sleepy and some women dizzy and loopy and tired. But if you're having trouble sleeping at night, maybe that's a good thing to help you sleep if you don't have carryover effects for the next morning. Whereas progestogens may have different side effects like bloating or breast tenderness or be just too strong when used in a birth control pill at those doses to be used in menopause. Perfect. That cleared it up for me. Thank you. So going back to the Women's Health Initiative and this kind of rumor or myth that started that estrogen causes breast cancer, when you break down the data, and, and I want you to get it right for us because I don't want to misspeak, it's actually the arm that was the combo of estrogen and a specific type of progestin. Estrogen alone arm did not have any increase in breast cancer. Can you clarify that for people? Sure. And this is a new finding, an important one. So in the Women's Health Initiative, which is actually a much larger study than just hormone study, but in the hormone study, there were two separate randomized clinical trials. The gold standard is a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Two separate randomized placebo-controlled trials. One with just estrogen in the form of Kremlin or conjugated equine estrogens against placebo. And that was given to women who already had a hysterectomy. 
So they didn't need any progesterone to balance the estrogen in their uterus. Okay? And the other, a nearly identical type study, was that same estrogen, conjugated equine estrogens, a synthetic form of progesterone, uh, progestin, against placebo. And both of them were randomized clinical trials. But here's the kicker and the really important point for both of those studies. They were randomized not for the baseline risk of breast cancer that the women had when they came into the studies, but they were randomized for the baseline heart attack risk when they came into the studies. So even though they were the gold standard, they were randomized, getting that gold standard mark of approval by virtue of cardiovascular risk or heart attack risk, not breast cancer risk. And the reason that's so important is that the data was not adequately massaged, if you will, so that the baseline risk of breast cancer was taken into account. And so when you have a study where the baseline risks are uneven to begin with, you have to normalize them or even them out so that you can make good assessments of the effects of the treatment. It's the same thing we do when we're playing a round of golf. Someone has a handicap and they get a certain number of strokes in their handicap. Or you spot the one team some runs in playing baseball so that everybody is about even to begin with. They didn't do that in the analysis of the Women's Health Initiative in the way they might have. And so I believe we got very broad brushstroke answers on breast cancer, for example, that really disappeared when that kind of massaging of the data, totally justified, by the way, was actually done. In the last analysis that I could give you, there was really no difference in the effect of estrogen and progestogen on breast cancer risk when a baseline adjustment for risk coming into the studies was actually undertaken. No difference. Fascinating. It's so interesting. So where did the, kind of preparing to talk to you, I started going down a rabbit hole and found the a big, it was Pfizer, but it was a company before Pfizer, $860 million settlement for Prempro causing breast cancer. Was there actually proof or was it just a class action lawsuit coming from the WHI? Like I certainly just seeing that in the news will scare women that estrogen causes breast cancer, that Pfizer had to pay all this money. What's, what was that about? Do you know the date of that settlement? It was, what was it? It was, they said the majority of the cases came after the Women's Health Initiative study came out. So I don't know the specifics. I do not know. I'd be happy to tell you if I knew. But here's what I think. I think that the Women's Health Initiative didn't really come clean on this issue that I just raised with you about baseline risks for breast cancer or the 
kind of handicap issues that I mentioned in my analogy of golf, they didn't really come clean about that until 2006, 2007. And so if the settlement came before 2006, in that time between 2002 and 2006, then the data that would have given Pfizer some ammunition to protect itself wasn't available. And as a result, one could easily understand why the general individuals in those lawsuits would have been awarded uh, um, some award because the data would have suggested that hormones in the form of Premarin and medroxyprogesterone acetate or Prempro was the cause of those breast cancers. Now, the flip side of that is that Prempro is still on the market. So, if, you know, if you're the FDA and you believe that a drug is dangerous and there's been a $800 million lawsuit suggesting or stating that the drug causes breast cancer, in your role to protect the public, you'd almost certainly have to take that drug off the market. And that hasn't been done. So we have a legal issue and we have the availability of exculpatory evidence, you know, whether the, the company and the plaintiffs had the data on the proper analysis that we just discussed. And then you have the FDA all really weighing in with different kinds of endpoints. Super interesting. Yeah, I think the trickle-down effect of all of that is just women seeing that a medication causes cancer. And so I think they're just, you know, so they're suffering because they, they want the up-to-date information and then, you know, that stuff gets dug up. Yeah, it's very difficult. And what I would say is that all of our societies, American College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, the Urolo Urology, the American Urological Association, the North American Menopause Society, the International Menopause Society, etc. They've all got recent updates to their advisories about hormone therapy risks and benefits that really need to now get disseminated more broadly beyond their members, but to the general population. And what I would say most importantly, remember I mentioned that the Women's Health Initiative was really about hormone therapy and the risk of heart attacks. Well, in the early years after the Women's Health Initiative came out, the American Heart Association came out very strongly and very negatively about the use of hormone therapy to prevent heart attacks and its effect on stroke in women, period, in women. Well, just in the last several months, so the Women's Health Initiative first results of hormone therapy came out in 2002, almost exactly 19 years ago, let's say. And just a few months ago, the American Heart Association actually came out reversing their decision from the early 2000s and saying, as we alluded to before, well, hormones are actually good for your heart if you start them when you're young. Uh, but they're clearly bad if you start them over 70. And if you start them in your 60s, it's a mixed bag. 
but they're good for your heart. As we thought way, way back in the 1990s, when you start them close to menopause. I love it. Women need to get, get that to penetrate the society, I think. I, and on that same level, let's talk about risk of heart disease and osteoporosis because my, what kind of one of my feelings on this is like, they say only take it for hot flashes or things you feel. And some women feel fine, but you can't feel heart disease and you can't feel osteoporosis. So the role of these medications in maintaining your health and as a preventative medicine, can you give your thoughts on that? Sure. And those two endpoints are very different. And I'll give you the very different take-home message at the beginning. So for example, most of us are trying to lose weight and stay thin and fit. That's great for your cardiovascular disease risk, but staying thin is really bad for your bones. So if you want to just take care of your bones and avoid osteoporosis, get fat, okay? But the, the, the important thing here is the risk goes in opposite directions. And so when one is thin and fit and active and protecting their heart, and reducing their risk of cognitive impairment, they actually may be doing their bones some damage by doing being too thin. And that balance is very difficult to find for the individual, for the individual. Now, it's also very difficult to find for the use of hormone therapy. So in the younger individual, and I'm only talking about women 50 to 60, and every woman who has menopause without breast cancer or some other cancer before the age of 50. So if you have an early menopause, you should be on hormone therapy, unless there's a reason not to be. But most women between 50 and 60 will have cardiovascular benefit osteoporosis benefit, treatment of menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, and uh, pain with sex. All of those benefits will accrue to that younger postmenopausal woman. And as she ages, the benefits will be less for her to start, but we think persist if she continues on her hormone therapy. Perfect. Let's talk quickly about that. I see so many women. It's not a coincidence that women come and see me about six months after their provider has stopped their systemic hormone therapy. Because I was like, oh, what a coincidence this is happening. And I'm like, no, it's exactly why they're coming to see me is because now they're getting the genital urinary symptoms of menopause. When, when somebody's, first of all, let's dispel the myth that you have to get off by a certain age if things are going well. And then the second question is, what if you've been taken off for like six months? When, when can you not start it up again? So that question is not answerable. Perfect. So we, we, we already said that women should start on hormones early and close to menopause. And we think, based on one very good study, but it's only one study, that they're still safe going on hormones up to six years, and some would even push it to 10 years since their last menstrual period. So if a woman has her normal last menstrual period at age 50, certainly she can go on hormones by 56, maybe by 60, even by 60. 
But what you're saying is, let's imagine Dr. X is on hormones herself from 50 to 60, and then has a lapse in her use of hormones, whether it's six months or a year. How long is too long for her to safely go back on them? And the answer is, I don't know. But I suspect that if she's been off for a short period of time, you mentioned six months, that she's fine to go back on because the damage that occurs when one is off hormones takes time, time measured in years typically, not in days or weeks or even in months. So that's what I usually do. If it's been longer, let's say a patient's been off for a few years, I might say, let's take a month or two longer and do an assessment of your cardiovascular health first, as if you were just starting at this age. And then if it looks good or clear, possibly even looks great because you've been on hormones all these years, then we'll put you back on. But let's take a step back and do an assessment first. Perfect. I was listening to your lecture from the Ishwish last fall, and it, I, I kind of had my mind blown on the when you started talking about the real risks of side effects of medications and what that might be for menopause hormones. And I think you compared it to other drugs, maybe even like cholesterol lowering drugs and birth control. Can you give us some perspective on risks of, of common drugs we take compared to the hormone, the menopause hormones? So, You know, the risks of hormone therapy, as I've alluded to, are dependent on the age of the person when they start on them. But most women start them for menopausal symptoms. I said start on them for menopausal symptoms around age 50, 51, 52, early 50s. And if we look at that group of women, say women 50 to 55, and their risks then the risks of hormone therapy are actually very similar to other medications that we use for other things, even over-the-counter medications. So for example, we don't think much about the risks of aspirin. You can go into a store and buy a 1,000 aspirin and not think at at all about the risks, but aspirins cause bleeding. And they actually cause an increased risk of death in people that use them for long periods of time. And they die from bleeding from their stomach and their upper gastrointestinal tract. About half the people of the world, half the people of the world have too high cholesterol by current standards. And so we put half of all men and women on cholesterol-lowering agents but forget that cholesterol-lowering agents actually increase one's risk of breast cancer. And we just completely forget about that because we assume that they're lowering lowering one's risk of heart attacks and possibly strokes. And that's definitely true for men. But you should know, as I said in that lecture, that statins don't work to prevent heart attacks in women who don't have pre-existing cardiovascular disease. They do not prevent the accumulation 
of cardiovascular risks in early menopausal women documented multiple times. And so women are put on them at age 50 thinking they're going to reduce their risk of heart attack and stroke because they're reducing their bad cholesterol, which is bad. But in fact, they're not getting any benefit. They're only getting risk. And their risk is just a little bit less for breast cancer than the hormone therapy in the Women's Health Initiative before adjusting for baseline risk. Because when you adjust for baseline risk, the risk completely goes away. Beautiful. How do people get as smart as you on this if they want to get as smart as you? So I I don't think it's impossible. Thank you for the backhanded compliment. (laughs) I, I do think it's pretty straightforward. And there are a number of articles that really take on this issue and try and give some perspective. And they're they're in the literature, they're available, it's not magic. And I think a lot of practitioners just need to take a step back. And it doesn't matter whether you're a gynecologist, a urologist, an internal medicine physician, a family doc, just doesn't matter. You need to take a step back and read a few, a handful of articles very carefully to get a current understanding and perspective. And that's really all that's called for. I can give you a better handle on the risk. Let's imagine that the risk of breast cancer for five years of hormone therapy is X, whatever it is. And that's for all women 50 to 80. The risk of credit card identity And I'll bet you every single one of your listeners has at least one credit card is the same. So if you have a credit card, you're taking a risk that someone's going to steal your identity. If you have more than one credit card, you have multiple risks that somebody's going to steal your identity if you're using those credit cards. Well, the risk of breast cancer over five years of hormone therapy is about the same as that risk. Now, that's not keeping everybody from using those credit cards. And I would also say, importantly, that a woman's risk of dying from breast cancer that occurs when she's on hormone therapy is less than her risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. So let's keep that in mind. Breast cancer is not the killer it once was. You've got to keep these risks in perspective. There's no free lunch. The most dangerous thing that you and I do, Kelly, is get into our automobile. Yep. Which yeah. is about 14 times our risk of getting anything bad happen to us if both of us were women in the women's health condition. I think the other thing that's once you start talking about risk, it gets so interesting, the risk of alcohol on breast cancer and how many women don't know about that and how much do we market alcohol to women day in and day out and normalize it? Like, this is what moms do. This is what you should do if you're a working woman. This is what you should do if you're happy and you're sad. It's like, that is a bigger risk of breast cancer than the hormone therapy for menopause. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. And we don't talk about other risks from alcohol consumed in greater quantities like liver dysfunction, et cetera. But yeah. the answer is 
there are very few benefits to alcohol beside how it makes you feel or get you drunk or temporarily solve your pain problem. But the answer is there are long-term risks. And for menopausal women, the risks from alcohol use on breast cancer are actually higher than the risks of hormone therapy. So good for people to know. So let's talk about hormones and desire, specifically talking about systemic menopause hormones and the effect on libido. I find mixed studies. It's kind of you're going to find what you want to find on that, which I think is good news because there are some women that can't have the hormones and you don't have to say they're screwed because of it. Can you talk about menopause hormones and desire? Certainly. And and it is a mixed bag, but I think there's a a nugget, a core group of information that's very clear and all in the same direction. So it's absolutely clear that in menstruating women, that the peak of estrogen and testosterone in the middle of their cycle, right around ovulation, is an evolutionarily derived trigger to sexual desire. Mother Nature wanted women to get pregnant, to want to have sex at mid-cycle when she was ovulating. And in fact, those hormones trigger sexual thoughts, fantasies, and sexual behavior. And we see that exact same thing in lower animals like mice and rats and guinea pigs. And we see that in our nearest primate relatives, the apes and the monkeys. It's exactly the same. And by the way, there's a whole group of monkeys that menstruate every month, just like women do when they're cycling. So that's clear. What is less clear is how menopausal hormone therapy with estrogen affects one's interest in sex or receptivity to sexual behavior. So here's how I would conceptualize it. First, the amount of hormones that we use in menopause is typically much lower than what we use uh, or what women make when they're having menstrual cycles, particularly for those two or three days right before ovulation. So it might be a dose effect. It might be a trigger effect. We know that for some endpoints, it's that rapid rise and fall of hormone therapy that actually triggers an event. I'll give you an example. It's a negative example, but it's a good one. For example, when women are ovulating and having menstrual cycles, when their estrogen falls right before their menstrual period, it is not uncommon for it to trigger headaches trigger migraines. And that might be an example where the fall in hormones triggers an event. Well, it may be that we need a rapid rise in hormones to trigger that strong sexual desire that we see at mid-cycle and cycling women. And many women who are on testosterone or your uh, male patients who take testosterone by injections will tell you that in the week after they get their implant or their injection or whatever, 
they may have a much stronger sexual desire in response to that peak of blood testosterone than uh, they do the rest of the time that they're getting some effect. So it could be a dose, it could be a trigger effect. The other thing that I think is a big confounder in menopausal women is whether or not they're having pain. No one wants to do something if it causes pain. I've often said, and for decades said, when was the last time that you purposefully put your hand on a hot stove? You don't do it, okay? When you were three or four, you inadvertently touched the coffee pot or you touched the hot stove or the opening of the oven, the door of the oven, and learned you don't touch it when it's on, it's hot, and it hurts. And, and the same thing happens to menopausal women. If they have pain with sex, their desire to engage in that activity is going to be dramatically reduced. And we all know that there's 20 or 25% of women who are on perfectly adequate systemic levels of hormone therapy that have persistent penetrated sexual pain. So yeah, you fix their hot flashes. Yeah, they're on hormones. Yeah, their blood levels of estrogen are fine, but their pain is not completely gone. They're not going to want to put their hands on that hot stove. Perfect. I love it. What would you say for all the men who are listening to this podcast, what would you say that men should know about menopause, menopause in general, and then menopause hormones? So a couple of things. I think the number one thing for men to know about their partners is they need to be patient and they need to communicate effectively. I'm oftentimes reminded about the difference between communication in men and women by my children and my nephews. So I have three daughters who used to talk all the time about everything. And getting a word in edgewise was the problem. Whereas my two nephews, they stopped talking completely when they uh, went through puberty and exchanged words for grunting. How was your day today? Grunt, grunt. And that was their communication. So there's a little bit of that left in all of us. And I think that we men need to listen very carefully to our female partners when they're going through menopause. Hear what they say. Hear both through their words and their nonverbal communication, what they're going through. And more importantly, to be patient because. Menopausal symptoms tend to get better, at least hot flashes get better over time, whether hormones are used or not. Vulvar and vaginal atrophy symptoms or pain with sex symptoms or other less common symptoms that might be presenting as urologic symptoms, they take a little longer to reach a zenith and tend to get worse with time as opposed to better with time. And depending upon which is getting better and which is getting worse, the approach to their treatment may be very, very different. 
And so supporting one's partner, listening to her problems is really important. And she's not making these things up. They are very real. Women were never designed to live past menopause in an evolutionary sense. And yet we humans in the developed world are living to be 90, 100. I heard of someone that just died at 114 years of age. So menopause is midlife now. It's amazing. I love it. Let's, let's wrap up on female testosterone and why we don't have a prescription for female dose testosterone in, in this country, and perhaps why a woman would want to ask her, her doctor about testosterone. Kind of talk to us about menopause and testosterone to wrap it up for us. Sure. So this is actually a pet peeve of mine and a really important subject for both men and women. So testosterone tends to go down in one system as we age. And when I say one system, I'm saying men and women both. We have really good data on men, really good data on women. And from about the late 20s, it's all downhill, if you will, for our testosterone levels. And men in the U.S. have had testosterone available for treatment of their falling testosterone for decades. And I think they have 30 or maybe, you know, even better, 35 different products to choose from, generic products, branded products, pumps, gels, injections, implants, everything under the sun. Men have an abundance of them because reduced testosterone in men is easier to measure and the outcomes are easier to measure than they are in women. Women have had lots of testosterone investigated for them with an attempt to get a female product FDA approved. But the process, Kelly, the process is very different. If I came to market with a brand new testosterone product for men, it would cost between 20 and $30 million to do the studies and hopefully get it on the market. That same new product for women would cost a billion dollars because the process for men and the process for women are dramatically different. The rules of the game are stacked against any testosterone product ever getting approved for women in the U.S. And I would think if they did say somebody had a billion dollars, we, would, we wouldn't be surprised why that product cost us so much more money to purchase. The FDA is setting the rules here, and the rules are really high stakes, but also almost impossible to surmount particularly if you're trying to develop a natural bioidentical testosterone product, which is what women would need and want. We don't want to develop something synthetic if we know it works naturally and bioidentically. But the problem is a natural testosterone product has to be FDA approved through the same process, that $1 billion price tag, and because it's natural, you can't patent it. It's a natural product. So while you could get some exclusivity, maybe three years, maybe five years to make all your money back 
before there were generics, it might be that you would have no exclusivity. And so why invest a billion dollars if there's no way you can keep generics off the market and make your money back? And that's where we are. And that has been the case for decades across the world. And there is now, for the first time, November of 2020, an approved product in all of Australia, a testosterone product for women. Awesome. I mean, I think where this leads women is women are either you have to use a compounded product or pellets, or you have to go to a doctor who might say, well, there's no FDA approved product for you. Everything else is off label and kind of risky. And so they're not interested in giving you testosterone. Women are kind of stuck in, they're just treading water. So for your listeners and for their doctors, Ishwish, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, just published what I call a how-to paper. We have good international consensus guidelines on the fact that testosterone is important to women and women's sexual desire and sexual function. Ishwish just published the how-to paper so that any practitioner can look in this paper and know how to give women testosterone without making them hairy and bald and bearded and get them the testosterone they need at a proper dose without side effects. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want more of Dr. Simon? So first of all, um, I have a very uh, good and constantly updating website called Intim Medicine, I-N-T-I-M like Mary, medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E, Intim Medicine, like Intimate Medicine, intimmedicine.com. And that's a good place to start. I'm doing a telemedicine visits or education visits across the world, sometimes uh, early in the morning uh, because the world is on a different time frame, but across the world. And I will be happy to work with your local doctor if you're calling me or we're having a Zoom in a location where I don't have a license and can't prescribe, but I'm happy to work with your local doctor. I'd be happy to work with uh, you, Kelly, if you have questions on some of your patients. And uh, it's just coming through a different channel. We do peer-to-peer consults all the time with our colleagues. You know, I had a case of X. What do you think I should do? Well, this is just, I had a patient with X. What do you think I should do? I love it. You're such a resource. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. Women need to listen to this. It's such good, such good stuff. Thanks for joining us today. It's really my pleasure. Thank you very much. And I hope a lot of people listen to our conversation.